Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City, Las Vegas, and the Silver State Canine Training Center, your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Episode 3. Episode 3, I recorded on my recent trip to Texas Tech University at the Canine Olfaction Laboratory with Dr. Nathan Hall. This episode, we go into various aspects of research that Dr. Hall has been conducting, as well as going over some of the different types of, I would call, hot topics in our detection dog world, such as pseudo versus real, uh, the use of bridge or marker training, uh, also cocktail versus single odor imprinting on dogs. So this episode kind of encompasses different things, but really goes over a lot of the research that's currently going on by Dr. Hall at Texas Tech University. In some upcoming episodes, another interview I did while I was on that trip was with one of his assistants, uh, Mallory DeChant. Uh, Mallory is also doing some various research studies on handler bias, uh, odor thresholds, and things like that. And on that trip, I also got to meet Dr. Paula Prada. She does extensive research on canine olfaction, but she also works with the crime labs there. So she's done some really good uh, research when it comes to the use of a mass spectrometer, knowing what is coming off a substance uh, as far as odor goes. So there's some good, interesting episodes up ahead, but this one is starting off with Dr. Nathan Hall from Texas Tech University. If you guys got any questions from this episode, please feel free to email me, ford at silverstatecanine.com. That's ford, F-O-R-D, at silverstate, K, the number nine, dot com. Hope you guys enjoy. Welcome to Canines Talking Sense. We are on site here at Texas Tech University. I'm with my guest, Nathan Hall, or Dr. Nathan Hall here. Nathan, uh, could you just give me a quick rundown of your background and what you do here at the, is it the Animal Science Laboratory here at, or what's your guys' actual term? Uh, we call ourselves the Canine Olfaction Lab, but thank you very much for coming all the way down here. Uh, Beautiful, sunny, and Lubbock. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so my background and what we've been working on here uh, is I did my PhD at the University of Florida. Mm-hmm. I did a postdoc at Arizona State University. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got my PhD in behavior analysis, so behavioral psychology. And for all throughout my PhD, as well as my postdoc, and now for going into my third year at Texas Tech, we have been studying canine behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, with most, I'd probably say, slightly more than most of our research focusing on trying to understand uh, olfaction, so what is the dog's sense of smell, Mm -hmm. Uh, but also not just simply measuring their olfactory abilities, but also looking at how does training and sort of cognitive sort of capacities influence their detection performance, and uh, how can we sort of manipulate our training to best optimize uh, detection and specifically detection under very difficult situations and so yep. not just your typical situations but things like having to detect revised explosive devices or yep. homemade explosives which sort of create a whole new set of issues and challenges that dogs are faced with. 
Absolutely. And you were gracious enough, like you said, I got to come here and visit and see the laboratory. One of the cool things I got to view was the, um, I call it, I, the, the, the system in which you were able to take a target odor and bring it down to different levels to dilute it uh, to see at what level could the dogs uh, detect it at. Not only that, but also the study where I kind of came across, I came across you was at a CNCA conference where you discussed the ammonium nitrate study where it was discussed um, where dogs were trained on a more initially a impure version of ammonium nitrate versus the pure version of ammonium nitrate. Can you give us a quick kind of description of what that study was and what you kind of observed and what you discovered from that survey? Mm -hmm. Yep. So um, for that experiment, uh, well, and also for the air dilution olfactometer, I guess is our our, mm -hmm. our equipment name. Yeah. Uh, we like to build a lot of fancy things for dogs, uh, yep. so dogs can play on different computer-based equipment. Very sort cool like, stuff, I'll say for sure. It's like a uh, like a Wii or something for dogs who mm -hmm. have their own computer system to play with. But anyway, uh, so for that study, what we were looking at is uh, sort of two different perspectives on when it comes to homemade explosives, right? Mm -hmm. So homemade explosives are going to be taking typically some sort of oxidizer, which is going to be your your bang component, mm -hmm. and it can be mixed with a wide variety of different fuels. Yep. What your fuel source is, is not any one particular thing. Mm -hmm. So sugar could be a common one, but mm -hmm. it could be coffee, it could be anything. Any organic material will mm -hmm. sort of help mix with that oxidizer, which means from the dog's perspective, it's got to detect this oxidizer in a wide variety of mixtures. Yep. So the question is, is, well, how do you tell your dog that I want you to find ammonium nitrate when it's mixed with any of these things mm -hmm. and not having to train a dog on ammonium nitrate in this, ammonium nitrate in that, ammonium mm -hmm. nitrate in that, because what if someone comes up with another fuel yep. and we want the dog to still be able to find that? So how do you do that? So we took dogs and we sort of split them off into two different groups and we trained them in two different sort of in principle ways. One group where well, we've got sort of the target only, or if you want, sort of mm -hmm. pure in that sense. Mm -hmm. They We try to focus them purely on ammonium nitrate. So they learned ammonium nitrate target, extractors, non-target yep. not to respond to those and they learn that very quickly you know mm -hmm. that's not a surprise probably for any of our handlers out there uh but then our other group got only the mixtures and uh with ammonium nitrate so they didn't mm -hmm. get pure ammonium nitrate yep. they got ammonium nitrate mixed with say for example sugar or ammonium mm -hmm. nitrate with coffee or ammonium nitrate with lemons or mm -hmm. ammonium nitrate with uh citrus or sure. some other odor yeah so they only got it mixed and their distractors were those other components like Correct. citrus, lemon, sugar, sugar yep. coffee. All of those were served as distractors. So don't alert to coffee. Yep. If you got coffee plus ammonium nitrate, alert to that. Yep. So all the, those two groups of dogs, the pure and the mixture, sort of mm -hmm. got the training for 25 days. Yep. And then we gave them tests yep. where we asked them to detect sort of what we simulated as real mm -hmm. explosive mixtures, ammonium nitrate mixed with the fuel yep. you have to alert to. Yep. And if you have just the fuel, don't alert to that. So the yep. fuel could be coffee, sugar, et cetera. Sure. Uh, and specifically what we did is we took new components the dogs had never experienced in any of their trainings. So this mm -hmm. is the first time they see it. Yep. And we did them in probe trials where no matter how they responded, correct or incorrect, they got the reward. Mm -hmm. So they weren't explicitly being trained on this. So we were asking them, you know, we're not going to give you the, the answer. Yep. Just tell us what you think. Yep. The dogs that got the pure only, mm -hmm. when they got ammonium nitrate mixed with something, they didn't find the ammonium nitrate. Sure. All they smelled was the fuel component to yep. it. And they said that's a distractor and they didn't respond to that. Yep. Their hit rate, so when the ammonium nitrate was there, 
dropped to, I believe it was below 50%, mm-hmm. which is actually quite bad. You yeah, don't want yeah, that. yeah. However, the mixture trained dogs, yeah. they performed identical to how they did in training, which was about 75% correct mm-hmm. overall. Mm-hmm. And no matter what we threw at them, whether it was something they'd never smelt before, mm-hmm. they were able to detect the ammonium nitrate in that because they had lots of experience of ammonium nitrate being mixed with different odors that they could sort of extract. This is how ammonium nitrate changes the smell Mm -hmm. of the fuel so that they were able to focus in on that ammonium nitrate. And their performance stayed stable from training to no matter what mixtures and whether Mm -hmm. they were novel mixtures Mm -hmm. across the board, whereas the dogs that had only the pure, uh, when it came to the ammonium nitrate mixtures, they did quite a poor uh, uh, performance, especially with their hit rate. But once they started getting mixture training, so we mm-hmm. took those dogs that had the pure only, yep. and they started getting experience with mixtures during yep. the testing, within just a few days, their performance picked up dramatically so that by the end of about five days of testing, those dogs were at the same level as the mixture training dogs. But what they needed yep. was the experience of this is what ammonium nitrate smells like with other things. Yep. It's not the same as when it was just by itself. Yep. Where the other side, like you pointed out, it took the mixture dogs 25 days to learn that process and when you took the pure dogs it took them five days exactly so there's a great question in there is uh you know obviously if you want your dog to find mixtures they need to have experience with mixtures mm-hmm. ultimate sort of take home is you know your dog will find what you train to find yeah so if you want it to find mixtures it will find mixtures if you mm-hmm. don't train it to find mixtures it won't find mixtures mm-hmm. but the question is is well what would have been the most efficient training mm-hmm. would have been more efficient to focus them purely on the ammonium nitrate then switch them to mixtures and maybe mm-hmm. that would have taken significantly less than the 25 days yep uh or should they just get you know start from mixtures and continue with mixtures that question that's going to require another study sure. uh, that we'll need to do mm-hmm. but that's a really good question as to what's going to be the fastest training method in there but ultimately if you want your dog to respond to the mixtures they need mm-hmm. to have some experience with mixtures perfect so what you bring up is a age-old question within our detection dog community, which is, should I train my dog on one odor at a time, or should I do the cocktail method or the stew method? And obviously the premise behind that is, the argument is, well, a dog can smell, you know, we smell pizza, the dog smells pepperoni, cheese, tomato sauce, flour, you know, and so on. So what have you seen as the pitfalls that come with t- trying to do a cocktail method methodology versus training actually focusing on one odor at a time in, in that process yeah so that's another sort of good common question um so what we got from that last experience experiment mm-hmm. is that if you want them to sort of have that uh sort of identify those individual components or individual ingredients they have to be trained that way mm-hmm. that won't spontaneously happen yep. you just give them a mixture they just respond to that particular mixture alone. They need training where they have the mixtures with relevant ingredients and mixtures without relevant ingredients. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to start off with a cocktail and sort of, and you want them to find all four ingredients together, you just sort of put them together, then all they're going to find likely is that cocktail. Mm-hmm. And then you're probably going to have to then subsequently separate out those individual components later on mm-hmm. uh, because when you start mixing things together, olfaction is actually incredibly complex and you can get a lot of fun and crazy things to happen. So, for example, if I give you uh, a chemical that's sort of is reminiscent of strawberry, mm-hmm. and I give you a chemical that's reminiscent of caramel, right? Mm-hmm. You mix those together, sounds like a great dessert. Yeah. Going on. Yeah. So what do you think you'll smell? Mm-hmm. Pineapple. Yeah. You know, yeah. It'll produce a pineapple sensation. Okay. Which 
you know, the last time you smelled a pineapple, you never thought, hmm, I smell the reminiscence of strawberry and caramel, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's not very easy when you start to get mixtures, you get what we call configural processing, or basically it creates A plus B equals C, not mm-hmm. A plus B equals A, a B. Plus, yeah, exactly. Right? So mm-hmm. that happens quite often in, in, um, in olfaction. And what directly determines that? There's some complex theories out there that we can get into if you want, or we can mm-hmm. say that for another podcast. <laughs> sure. Uh, but when you start, especially with complex odor mixtures and of themselves, right? Because yep. if you're narcotic, it's not, marijuana is not just marijuana, right? Yep. There was air quotes there. It's not just one thing. Sure. Marijuana is actually made up of lots of different chemicals. Uh-huh. And as you can imagine, not all marijuana smells the same. It's Correct. going to have different kinds of smells to it. Yep. And it's going to depend on all those different volatiles. So when you start mm-hmm. mixing all those volatiles, with all the volatiles of other narcotics, and you put those together, what's going to happen? I don't know. Yep. Uh, and, and it's going to be a very complex interaction that might end up allowing for what we call elemental processing, where maybe marijuana plus cocaine smells like marijuana and cocaine, mm-hmm. or it might produce something completely different. Correct. That's an empirical question that no one's actually ever done the research on to test. So yep. uh, I think the assumption that they can smell each of those individual components. Mm-hmm. It's just that, a complete assumption. We do Absolutely. not know that. Yeah. Um, and what's going to produce from that mixture, whether there's going to be dominant chemicals that mm-hmm. they're going to pay attention mm-hmm. to, because when you get mixtures, you get things like overshadowing effects where, right. uh, so like, for example, we know from rodents and experiments, if you have, say, a really bright light and a small tone and you mm-hmm. present those at the exact same time, what do they pay attention to? Mm-hmm. The really bright light. Or yep. they pay attention to the more salient stimulus. Correct. So if you put together this cocktail and one odor has a really high vapor pressure, is very yep. salient, mm-hmm. then they're going to pay attention to that. And that's going to overshadow Correct. all of those other components. Yep. We can also get what we call locking effects sometimes, where mm-hmm. if you had training to one component mm-hmm. previously, so yep. say you were trained to... Uh, marijuana specifically, mm-hmm. and then you add marijuana with other ingredients, mm-hmm. what you would actually expect is almost a blocking effect where they'll only pay attention to the marijuana Correct. and not to the other components because they, you know, the dogs aren't going to learn additional signals just for fun. Yes. You know, think about when you're yeah. in elementary school, yeah. right? You learned exactly what you needed to for the test. Mm-hmm. Nothing more, yep. nothing less, yep. just what you need. Yep. And if you learn that one thing is a predictor, yep. Then and other things are just redundant information. Yep. And there's no reason to store that information Correct. or to learn that information. You're mm-hmm. just going to learn in the most efficient way. Dogs yep. are amazingly efficient at finding what is the easiest answer. Oh, sure. And uh, if you are not thinking about or sort of preparing what that odor information mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. and you're not conscientious of that, then you might incidentally be mm-hmm. training them on something too easy. Sure. And then you might not get the results that you want to get. Yeah, no. And that's a, a thing that I think um, most overlook is the fact when you're putting that cocktail together and you're saying, oh, it separates that. Okay, it separates that. But there is a high probability one of those is more dominant and one of those is getting the reinforcer in that sequence. So if I have that box, and that box has multiple odors in it. The dog's picking up the strongest one. I keep reinforcing that over and over again. Like you said, the overshadowing effect that's occurring is the dog is picking out, let's just in this situation say heroin was the strongest odor in that box. The dog is picking up on the heroin, gets keep, keeps getting reinforced for that. The other odors are there, they're acknowledged, but it decreases the value of those, especially when you start putting them out separately. Versus if I teach the heroin separately, I teach the cocaine separately and the meth separately, I've created a high value to each one of those 
which then makes it more equal across the board versus doing the cocktail, which I'm inadvertently creating a higher value to a separate one without knowing I'm doing that. Which brings up to the other question that me and you were talking about was not only is there that uh, chemical that could be prominent, but you also brought up there's also a psychological element that becomes prominent. Could you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, exactly. So uh, you can look at from a chemical perspective, sort of a headspace analysis. What are the, the concentration of different volatiles uh, that your target or whatever your substance is that's actually emitting? Mm -hmm. You can look at that and say, chemically, this is the one that's most present, yep. which is typically going to be the, the thing with the highest vapor pressure. Yep. So from a chemical perspective, a chem, you know, you might say, ah, this is what they might be detecting, and this is probably the signature. Mm -hmm. However, we're failing to consider the psychological perspective from the dog. Mm -hmm. So our olfactory systems are geared towards detecting relevant things, whether they're going to be something uh, largely from a food perspective, something that's going to allow us to find what we need to mm -hmm. for hunting, right, for a dog, yep. or tell us what not to eat. Yep. So some things with actually very low vapor pressures and very low concentrations are extremely salient to us. Mm -hmm. So, for example, vanillin. Humans are extremely sensitive to that. Yep. So you might think that, well, vanillin, there's a very, very little amount of vanillin. Think about the vanilla extract you add to your cookies, right? Yep. It's a very, very small concentration, uh, but it's because you're so sensitive to it. You only need a little bit amount yep. to have a pretty strong psychological perspective. Mm -hmm. Another one is think about ethanol. So uh, like uh, we did a study with using different alcohols with dogs before, mm -hmm. and we had lots of experience smelling the different ones. So ethanol has a very high vapor pressure. Mm -hmm. So think about Everclear, right? That's like yeah. 90, something, high something crazy proof, proof yeah, right? Like 101 proof or whatever, yeah. Exactly. If yeah. you can't buy 100% ethanol, think yeah. of Everclear, yeah. and you can get, right, that has a really high vapor pressure. Mm -hmm. A lot of ethanol is coming off of that. It yep. smells, uh, well, it theoretically smells a lot, but yep. the perceptual component to it is actually mm -hmm. quite minimal, right? Mm -hmm. You're not sitting there like, wow, I can smell this ethanol all across the room, mm -hmm. although the vapor pressure is really high. So mm -hmm. it's a really high concentration there, uh, but it's not being perceived all that strongly. Sure. Now take something that is very similar to ethanol, and you add a couple of carbon atoms mm -hmm. onto it, mm -hmm. you have pentanol, which mm -hmm. is now a five-carbon chain mm -hmm. with the same alcohol group. Ethanol is just a two-carbon chain with that yeah. ethanol. By adding those carbon chains, you're significantly decreasing the vapor pressure. Okay. So the concentration that's available chemically mm -hmm. from a yep. chemical perspective is a lot lower. Yep. However, if I put a bottle of ethanol next to you and a bottle of pentanol next to you, mm -hmm. you would say, whoa, that pentanol, that is strong. Yeah. That ethanol, you'd say, you know, thinking of the Everclear, right? Yeah. You might have a perception when, it, the, mat, when the cup gets really close to your mouth. Yeah. But, you know, if someone pours you a bottle of, you know, a cup of whiskey yep. on the bar, you're not thinking, whoa, man, yeah. that's way too strong, right? <laughs> yeah. It's only until it gets to your mouth. Sure. So here, chem from a chemical perspective, the ethanol is going to be more available. Yeah. But from a psychological perspective, yep. you're going to be detecting yep. that pentanol at a lot yep. lower concentrations and that's going to feel or seem yeah. Yeah. as a more dominant component to it. Sure. So now mix those two together, yep. which one is going to be more dominant? You might say from a chemical perspective, ethanol. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you from a psychological perspective, pentanol. Yeah. No, it, it makes sense. And I, I really like the cookie analogy just because <laughs> as a human, we really get Cookies that. easier, yeah. because yeah, you're like, okay, in the cookie, there's chocolate chips, there's the flour, there's all these other major components, and there's a little tiny drop of vanilla. But when you tasted it, your brain can pick out that vanilla. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, for the for our listeners, as you consider this, 
look at that as the component if you're doing multiple odors in one containment or a cocktail method of training. What you think you are putting in there and what the dog may be taking in is highly different. And you don't have a scientific answer, if challenged, about that methodology. So I, what I'm hoping as a listener you're hearing is the best practices through what science is telling us is to train one odor at a time, create a high value through your reinforcement of training to each odor. So that way it's the same across the board. So when you're out detecting, whether it be in narcotics or explosives, each odor holds a, or each substance holds a high value due to your training and due to your reinforcement versus trying to shove it all into one little sandwich and say, oh, he's picking up all of it. Because we are able to establish through science that is that theory or that hypothesis isn't exactly correct. So that aside, another big one within our industry is pseudo versus real or live odor. Um, as best you can, describe what you've learned or what you've seen in research in regards to uh, synthetic odors or synthetic training aids compared to live or real training aids. Okay, great. Yeah, so uh, going back to sort of, I guess, the overall theme here is you want to train your dog from, you know, to find what you want them to find in the real world. Mm -hmm. uh, so from a generalization perspective, from a wide variety of species uh, that we know, you know, what they're going to learn to find or pay mm -hmm. attention to is going to be most highly correlated with what they've been trained with. Yep. And so if there's any difference, mm -hmm. whether it being more things, less things, mm -hmm. fewer things, you know, fewer components, more mm -hmm. components, if you're just mm -hmm. taking a subset of the real sort of odor smell or complete mm -hmm. smell, mm -hmm. and you're only training with that, then that's what they're going to find. Mm -hmm. Not And that's what they're going to find the best. Yeah. And depending on the quality and the number of components, then perhaps you can get closer and closer to the real such that you might get, you know, pretty close generalization from, you know, the subset of odor space to the actual real odor mm -hmm. space. Um, but sort of to go back to whenever we're talking to try and bring it back to home and humans, yeah, yeah. I'd like to go back to foods. Sure. So we were talking a little bit about today because one thing that a lot of studies have used and we use also yep. is amylacetate. Yep. It, you know, it's sort of, it's a banana flavor agent. Yep. So, you know, think about uh, bananas or runts. Yep. If, if all our the, listeners are old enough to know the, runts. Yeah, the runt candies, yes. Yep. So, uh, you know, the, the little fake banana one, right? Yep. Or the call it real banana if you want. Yeah. So the banana one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it has a banana flavor, yep. but it's a fake banana, right? Yep. No one has ever taken a banana yeah. and little runt flavor uh -huh. and said, these taste the same. Yeah. Right? right. There's no difference. Yeah. Or you get a banana flavored milkshake. Yeah. Uh, you could pretty readily tell whether yeah. it was banana flavored yeah. or it was made out of bananas. Yeah. Right. Correct. Yeah. And what is the reason for this? Is because banana flavors, to make banana flavor, mm -hmm. we take a very small subset, mm -hmm. and a lot of times just one chemical ingredient. Mm -hmm. And we use that one chemical ingredient. To, because that's the dominant one of the banana. Correct. So it's reminiscent of banana. Correct. But it's not the same as banana. Yep. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, so it will might remind you of that banana, mm -hmm. but without all of those other volatiles, all of those other, you know, tens to hundreds of different volatiles being put together, mm -hmm. it's not creating the complexity of what banana is. Sure. It's only creating, it's recreating a very small subset of that mm -hmm. that's reminiscent. So mm -hmm. think about it from a dog's perspective. 
mm-hmm. even from your perspective, right? Mm-hmm. If you've never had the core, that correlation where you go and you order something that is banana flavored and yeah. then you're thinking, oh, this is banana, yeah. right? And you're just given this milkshake. Sure. Would you Im- immediately say that this was your first time? Yeah. Yeah, this tastes just like bananas. Uh-huh. Probably not. Yeah. You you might say, hmm, this reminds me of things I've had before. Yeah, it's close. It's I don't close. know exactly what it, but yeah. Exactly. So you can easily imagine that something similar could be happening when you're taking only a subset of the real thing mm-hmm. and presenting that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be reminiscent, mm-hmm. but not exactly the same. And obviously there's going to be huge variation in quality. If this yep. pseudo is just one chemical, if the yep. pseudo is tens of chemicals, if the pseudo is, you know... How close is the pseudo to the real? Sure. Which a lot of times we don't know. When you yeah. buy a package, it's not telling you yep. on the back of the package. This is what's here. This concentration yeah. of this ingredient, this concentration of that ingredient, uh-huh. this concentration of this ingredient. Yep. And it's 90% similar to the chemical concentrations of Correct. This we thing. don't ever get that. That's the big problem. We don't get that information. Yep. So it's hard to know without doing an experiment yep. of one specific product, which just there's not a lot of research on that. Yep. Uh, and you can imagine that... Uh, and other situations where sometimes even leaving out one ingredient could have a really big impact. Yep. Uh, think about like TNT, right? So mm-hmm. uh, a lot of uh, military-grade TNT yep. is going to be you know, 99.8% pure, right? Yep. That sounds great. So mm-hmm. now you just need to train the dog TNT to find it. Sure. However, with different vapor pressures, uh-huh. right, the odor headspace is going to be made up of actually 58% DNT. Yeah. Yep. So now when you're thinking from an odor headspace perspective, uh-huh. It's going to be a different smell, even though that the actual has that was only a small contaminant. Sure. And then now that I'm adding this complexity of what yeah. about the psychological dominance of sure. this? Yeah. You know, what what has a dog sort of evolved to detect and smell? Yeah. What olfactory receptors does it have that detect this particular chemical? Mm-hmm. And that subspace, we don't know. A lot more research needs to be done on that. Yeah. So from that perspective, we have no idea what the dog is going to be perceiving as a dominant component unless we directly test it, which is why we need a lot more research in this area. This episode is brought to you by Focused Canine Products. Focused Canine Products are products based for detection dogs, such as the Odor Feeder Bowl, a specialized bowl where you can place target odor inside and feed your dog. So you are going to condition your dog each time it's fed with the presence of a target odor you wish to train your dog. There is also a new set of products called the drawer boxes. These boxes look like a drawer, create a seam instead of the typical hole up top. Having a box that looks like a drawer, operates like a drawer, does a couple functions. One, this drawer is divided so you can create depth. The other part is a drawer matches what your dog searches in reality. These boxes are lightweight, made of metal, easy to move around, easy to clean, and allows you versatility when training detection dogs. Go visit Focus Canine at www.detectiondog.com, www.detectiondog.com. Silver State Canine is an industry-leading canine training center specializing in detection dogs. Are you looking for a career and want to become a detection dog handler? Or are you already a detection dog handler and you're wanting to become that detection dog trainer? Whether you're in law enforcement, security, or even a civilian, we have a program designed for you. We also have trained detection dogs available. We also have nose work training at our facility every week, twice a week. We are also now the home 
of the National Association of Canine Scent Works trainer courses. So upcoming this year, 2019, you will see these courses offered for those becoming a National Association of Canine Scent Work Canine Nose Work Trainer. For more information on how we can help you in your detection dog needs, visit our website, www.silverstatek9.com. That's www.silverstatek9.com. Also, give us a call, 702-629-3986. Again, Silver State Canine, the industry's leader when it comes to detection dogs. So what do we do for... We get those, like you kind of thing you just brought up, we get given these live training odors, so whether it be the narcotics given to us by DEA or your state or whatever, and you're training your dog. What is something you can do or is, or is there anything you can do to kind of ensure what your training is going to be successful? Because, again, you're limited by what you're given. Mm-hmm. So what, what are some things to look for to do or to try to do to make sure that you're backing up your training with what you're going to find for real? Yeah, so uh, I would say a good rule of thumb is variability, variability, variability. Okay. Uh, so if you could have different training aids from different sources, mm-hmm. if you could have, um, you know, even for storage, right? Mm-hmm. If um, one concern is if you're storing everything together, yep. then you're essentially contaminating everything to this combination. Yep. And if that's not what they find on the street, then mm-hmm. they may not alert to that. Mm-hmm. So. If you have, if you take whatever it is that you're getting, you sort of aliquot it into different sort of separate subsets, separate glass jars or something to that sort, mm-hmm. so that, the, you know, some are going to be pulled out and used, yeah. some are not going to be pulled out and used, so that some are going to stay sort of how they came, mm-hmm. others are going to have a whole bunch of other contaminations from training, yep. and you have them into a whole bunch of different aliquots because... You don't need a lot yeah. right, to, to, to do the training. And your control of odor can be through manipulation of surface area, uh, you know, the, the items that you're putting the things in, mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. through quantity. So, Correct. for example, having 10 grams versus 12 grams, yep. it's probably going to make no difference from an odor perspective, but how right. you spread it out, what container you put it in, yep. how you close it into a cabinet, that's going to change your odor profile a lot more than 10 yep. versus 12 grams. So you can yep. split it up. Keep it stored in different ways, in different mm-hmm. areas. Mm-hmm. If you could get different uh, samples from different agents, from different mm-hmm. areas, the more variability you train, the more you can sort of think of um, think of sort of like a, a big bell curve. And you're, mm-hmm. you're sort of sampling from all along different spots of that bell curve. Mm-hmm. You're going to find that whole bell curve. Sure. But if you're only sampling from one spot, Constantly. what happens yep. is that you get mm-hmm. this narrowing of that bell curve and it sort of focuses only on what your specific thing is. Yep. So if you have a lot of variability that sort of spreads out along there, mm-hmm. you'll get greater generalization to a wider variety of things. Yep. And that's going to be a better way to sort of uh, uh, get a, a wider cast and, and greater detection of, of things that might be on the street or in different scenarios because the dogs would become familiar with how this odor changes in all yeah. these different scenarios. Yeah. No, that's an excellent point. So when you have your training aids, people, one of the things you can do is contain it in different ways as much as possible. Also, if you have restrictions on your containment, then work with other agencies or other handlers who have their odors contained in a different way. You By creating those variables, there's always going to be that one factor that stays the same, which is the target chemical that you're constantly looking for. 
And by doing that, you're creating that dog to have better reliability and better understanding of what they're looking for. If you're always training on your training aids um, or that you're doing that a majority of the time, and I say by majority, I'm saying 75% or greater of the time you are training on only your stuff, you are opening up the ability for the dog to have confusion when presented with a slight variable of the same substance that's stored differently or housed differently or grown differently, uh, any number of those, those factors that we kind of discuss there. You also hit on something that is a very common thing within the industry, which is we always document our training aids based on their weight. And if you would explain why weight doesn't completely have relevance to what we are having the dogs detect versus some something else that you can talk about, which you hit, which is surface area. But if you don't mind, go into a little bit of that and kind of explain why those things are different. Right. So it seems very um, intuitive and, you know, that weight is going to change the odor profile. So that, you know, the detection of one gram is going to be a much lower threshold than detection of 10 grams. Mm -hmm. uh, however, uh, odors don't really behave that way in that sense. And it's going to depend on your environment. But in a lot of situations, you're looking at uh, pretty much a closed space. Mm -hmm. And in a closed space, what happens is that you reach an equilibrium okay. with that environment. So mm -hmm. you have this vapor pressure, which is basically saying, how much does this chemical want to leave this sort of solid surface and become an odor, become mm -hmm. gaseous, mm -hmm. uh, uh, or liquid to become a gaseous? Mm -hmm. uh, and what that's going to depend is what's the concentration in the sort of air around me. Mm -hmm. If I'm in a closed space, once I reach equilibrium so that mm -hmm. the concentration in the gaseous phase or the yeah. odor phase mm -hmm. is at that vapor pressure level versus where the solid is, mm -hmm. then there's no there's not going to be any more transfer. Mm -hmm. so if I add 10, another 10 grams, another 12 grams, another 14 grams, another 15 grams, mm -hmm. it's not going to change the odor profile at all. It's yeah. going to be the exact same. Mm -hmm. But if I were then to change it so that I have, you know, a draft in a different area, mm -hmm. if I, I have... Uh, a non-open area, if I have a bigger space, mm -hmm. all of these are going to start to change or that time since mm -hmm. the, the odor has been planted. All of these things are going to be changing concentration. Yep. But simply, if I take a, a sealed cabinet mm -hmm. or a sealed jar that might have one particular small hole in it, yep. uh, and I put 10 grams versus 20 grams in it, mm -hmm. I'm probably providing the exact same odor exactly. profile than I would mm -hmm. be if I had 10 grams and 10 grams. Yep. But if I change it so that one is more obstructed, one is more clear, mm -hmm. maybe one's against a wall where the where sort of the environment might pool the odor in different areas, mm -hmm. now I'm starting to change the odor profile and how the odor is behaving. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be less important than simply, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the quantity. And yeah, surface area is another one. Mm -hmm. So uh, we were talking before, what yep. I like to use is, you know, <laughs> take a bottle of vinegar, right? Yep. And sometimes we actually use vinegar for cleaning. So you take a, open up a bottle of vinegar, yeah. you can put it on the table and stand, you know, a foot away and you're not going to smell it. Yeah. Now take it, put it in a, you know, dilute it with water, make it yeah. even less concentrated, yeah. put it in a spray bottle and spray it on the table uh -huh. to clean the table. And all you're going to smell is vinegar. Yep. You walk in that room and you're like, oh my yeah. goodness, vinegar. Yep. Yep. Uh, the reason there is not because you've, You've actually diluted it by when you add the water to it. Yeah. But what's happening here is that you're increasing that surface area. Uh -huh. So there's more opportunity for that odor to escape that liquid phase, yep. come up into the air. So it's going to be sort of that equilibrium is going to be reached faster. So yep. that concentration is going to be yep. increasing faster. So that will be manipulating things. So mm -hmm. spreading your odor out, 
uh, is going to be a much stronger impact than mm -hmm. having five grams versus ten grams. Mm -hmm. No, it's good. It's great. And then and piggybacking on that, the next kind of topic that gets everybody going is the term residual odor. And um, obviously, for lack of better terms, is the substance was there; it's no longer there. However, odor is still present. Can you kind of elaborate on that and what, what, why this exists and how that happens? And and in training of dogs, what's the the intensity sometimes of that odor particulates that are still there, even though the substance is not there? Yeah. So that's another one of those that's going to depend on so many different um, mm -hmm. situations, right? Yep. So depending on what is the material that it was around. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times we like to use very porous materials mm -hmm. just for mm -hmm. convenience, like yep. wood, yep. right? Yep. <laughs> uh, to be honest, if you're using, if we have a sort of a wood situation, yep. it would be very difficult to ever argue that it's gone, right? Correct. Uh, so depending on what that material is, mm -hmm. uh, how you've cleaned it in between, are mm -hmm. all going to influence that. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you have a porous material, the material could potentially absorb that mm -hmm. item and then it will later be sort of releasing that once you remove that item because it's going to, the concentration in the air around it is going to be lower, so it's going to sort of diffuse into the air mm -hmm. so that if you had a porous material, it could be diffusing later. Yeah. But another sort of caveat to that uh, that I think is also important is that a lot of times, uh, you know, we can use residual odor as an excuse Correct. for bad training. Yes. Where a dog false alerts. Yep. And we say that, oh, well, there must have been odor here 10 years ago, mm -hmm, or there must mm -hmm. have been an odor here, you know, forever ago without yeah. any real evidence yeah. for that. And that yeah. the dog must have smelt it mm -hmm. uh, without thinking that, no, I never really have run a lot of blanks on my dog. So I have no confidence as to Correct. whether, what is the false alert probability mm -hmm. of my dog? Mm -hmm. If my false alert probability is one in 10,000, yep. then yeah, if the dog alerts, then probably maybe yep. there was some contamination. Mm -hmm. If your false alert rate is 10% and the mm -hmm. dog false alerts, then mm -hmm. you probably have no real evidence whether that's residual odor yep. or just another false alert because of sort of how you arrange the training mm -hmm. situation. So it's also, while residual odor could definitely be an important potential contaminant and something mm -hmm. to think about mm -hmm. and something that needs to be controlled, mm -hmm and controlled conscientiously, mm -hmm. it also can't be used as an excuse for bad false alerting or, sure. or, or, or for training. Yep. So it has to be a very, uh, you have to put a lot of thought into this. Yep. Really think about this. Is my material porous? Mm -hmm. um, typically, if it's a material, porous material, so mm -hmm. like for some of our research, uh, we have sort of a more realistic setup where we yep. have porous material so yep. that the odor can diffuse through it. Yep. So what do we do at, uh, once we're done with the a single trial. Yep. We get rid of it. Yep. We take it. We take that porous material away. Yep. And it goes through a whole separate cleaning cycle to yep. get rid of it, and we put a brand new one mm -hmm. out to sort of remove that, so that yep. we can be pretty sure that we don't have that issue um, happening in that situation. So yep. that when the dog does alert, we're pretty confident that it's actually a false alert and yep. not a residual odor issue. Yep. So you have to be. This can't just make a oh my an assumption that oh my dog alerted there mm -hmm. must be residual odor. Mm -hmm. Or at the same time, you can't make an, an assumption that my dog, uh, you know, alerted, so it must be wrong. It's not residual mm -hmm. odor. You need to think about what are the situations uh, sort of going on in this situation mm -hmm. and be conscientious about it. Yep. Because if you make it, if you're continuously making assumptions, you could be letting something, you know, bad training continue. Oh, or, absolutely. Uh, yeah. 
No, so you guys go through the same thing that we go through in training dogs on odor, because that's part of your research is odor detection. What are things you brought up a second ago, which is doing your, making sure you're doing blank runs? Uh, what are some of the things that you guys do in training or your training methodology to ensure the dogs are being highly accurate and reducing any, as much as possible, false indications or incorrect indications? Um, what are some things you, you can talk about the, uh, the blanks. Also, if you don't mind talking about what me and you were talking about a little bit yesterday too, which was the indirect versus direct reward. And what I mean by that is the assumption that you have to reward at source in order for a dog to understand the association of odor to reward. I, I watched what you guys do. You guys are similar to us. You guys use marker training. It's the same thing in your guys' world. It's a clicker. You know, for us, it's a clicker and or the word. Um, describe why you guys do that why the, and also the importance of the, the or validating the, the training uh, by having your blanks. And, when, and what's also maybe what stage you, you introduce your blanks into your searches. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. So um, we do a lot of uh, almost obsessive compulsive kinds of things for checking for what are the dogs actually paying attention to. Mm -hmm. So some of them are actually, to an extent, probably uh, you know, not what you would want to do as a practical component, but we do it so that we are 100% certain that the dog is paying attention to the odor and nothing yep. else. Correct. So uh, one thing that uh, is definitely something that everyone could implement, mm -hmm. takes a little bit of effort, but everyone could, is double-blind testing. Yep. So right off from the bat, once we get the dog after a couple of sessions mm -hmm. onto uh, the target odor, we switch over to 100% double-blind training from there on out. Mm -hmm. uh, because there you can be sure that your handler, the dog's not picking up any kind of handler mm -hmm. cues. Basically meaning that the, the handler does not know where the target odor is. Mm -hmm. And we can do pretty simple arrangements. Basically mm -hmm. what you need is uh, uh, you know, a friend, an undergrad, mm -hmm. or yep. an, another student, yep. or someone... It basically will put out the odor and the, yep. and the situation, get out of the way, out of your view, yep. out of paying attention from you, out of mm -hmm. the dog's view, mm -hmm. and then basically you run the dog, you look, you find an appropriate alert, mm -hmm. you can call out, you know, is it at position two? Yeah. Yep. And then the person can call out, yes, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, and, then, and then you can sort of continue rewarding. There's a bit of a delay there. Yep. But we find, you know, so that's not ideal for training, but one of the areas that it has we found it to be beneficial mm -hmm. is that it prevents oopses or goofs yep. where you end up thinking you've trained the dog and then mm -hmm. finding out oh mm -hmm. no the dog is picking up on something very very subtle yeah uh, so uh, you know we have a variety of experiences where you know just simply leaning a little bit over uh -huh. or looking too much mm -hmm. and the dog is picking up on that yep. and then later you realize through a control test that that's yep. what the dog is picking up on and yeah. you're like now I have to completely retrain the dog. I have to yeah. remove this aspect to it. I have to control this behavior. Yep. Whereas if you started off with double blind training to begin with, you wouldn't have those You issues. eliminate those things pretty quickly. You eliminate those yeah. pretty quick along on training so that they yep. wouldn't have come up ever yep. to begin with. So what, and what part, so let's just say I'm week one of training and I've done, let's just say each day I'm doing three sessions of training and each session is probably four or five reps, let's just say. Mm -hmm. Um, would you guys introduce the double blind in week one or would you wait till it's probably like week two kind of se sequence? Cause the, the number I threw out there is probably about the typical average uh, for detection dog handlers when they're first starting out. So they're imprinting the odor. They've done, let's say, you know, three to four sessions in a day. Each session has anywhere between, let's say five to eight reps, maybe more, maybe less. But 
would you say that's a week one introduction, week two introduction, week what stage would you start putting in that double blind? I would say more depends on the dog. So Correct. When, when you see the dog that has a clear indication, yep. a clear alert response, yep. and you feel like you, that I now know this dog's alert and it's very clear to me, yep. then you can switch to double blind. Okay. You have to have that alert first. Yep. Because if the dog doesn't really have that alert yet, Correct. and then you're blind, and yep. then nobody knows, knows what's, what's going, going on, on. Yep. and then everyone's confused. Yep. But once that dog has a clear alert and you yep. feel like, yep, this dog is alerting, mm-hmm. now it's time to switch to double blind because... Yep. Right at that point, maybe the dog's not really alerting. Maybe yep. the dog's already picking up on something that you're doing Correct. and you don't know yet. But at that yep. point, if then you don't even know and the dog's mm-hmm. still alerting very clearly, mm-hmm. it's very reassuring and very it feels very good. And then you see the dog doing it yep. and you don't even know which is correct. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yep, this dog has got it. Yeah. And then from that point on, yep. just continue that way because typically then you start making the task harder and harder, maybe lower concentrations, more difficult situations, and where handler bias might come in or uh-huh. cueing of the dog might come in yep. is when t- stuff gets difficult, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, you don't cheat on an easy exam. You yeah. cheat on a hard exam. Exactly. Yeah. So yep. when it starts to get harder, then the dog will start looking for cheats. Yep. So as you start to get harder, if you've already implemented that double blind training, yep. then the dog won't have any cheats to be looking for. Correct. Or at least the cheat won't be you. The cheat yeah. might be something else oh, or yeah, some yeah, other yeah. contaminant, but at least yeah. it won't be you. Yeah. The CATS Activity Tracking System is a dynamic record-keeping program designed specifically for police canine operations, training, and deployments. Designed to protect officers and agencies from potential liability, CATS has been developed by police canine officers, prosecuting attorneys, and software engineers to meet the needs of today's law enforcement dog teams, and has been protecting canine units since 1992. In fact, CATS was the first software ever developed for law enforcement canine operations and continues to be the industry leader. It is the only complete records keeping canine software that can be used virtually any platform without the need for software downloads or applications. Visit catsplatinum.com. That's K-A-T-S-P-L-A-T-I-N-U-M.com. For a canine record management solution, we'll meet PackTrack. PackTrack is the top choice for canine handlers, trainers, and supervisors seeking a full-featured, flexible, and secure record management solution. It's designed to work the way that you do, whether you're at your desk or in the field. PackTrack was developed, tested, and proven by top canine training experts. To ensure safety of all recorded data, PackTrack operates the same way as secure infrastructures do in the U.S. government and numerous financial institutions. Their unique data management solution, which continuously backs up all records, provides convenient access to information throughout any web browser or your iOS or Android device. From the beginning, PackTrack has been focused on protecting officers and agencies from potential liability. Professionally designed forms and concise modern-looking reports make it very easy to document and prove the canine's reliability in court. Visit packtrackapp.com. That's www.packtrackapp.com. No, that's and that's and that's really good information because again, we always try to go off of, oh, I need to do x many reps or this much time, and at the end of the day, it comes down to that dog. Mm-hmm. And like you said, the importance of the dog's alert and knowing what that is. 
which goes into, so like I was saying a second ago, how come you guys and all of science and training dogs have never used this method of you had to put its treat or toy at odor source? Well, how come you guys don't need that? But apparently we do in our professional detection dog world. Why do you guys use a marker-based system versus a reward-from-source-based system? Yeah, I personally don't use it because we actually did a study in 2012, I think, um, where we actually found out it took a lot longer to train it that way. Yep. So we buried the food, so the dogs had this digging task where they had to find the target odor, and underneath the target odor was the food. Mm -hmm. Basically what happened is that uh, when we started doing tests, we got overshadowing of the food odor. Yep. Basically, the dog's really strongly paying attention to the mm -hmm. food odor. Mm -hmm. And yes, there is our target odor there, yep. but they don't care about it. They care Correct. about the food odor. Yep. Maybe if you run this for a really long period of time, yep. uh, well, I mean, people do it all the time. Of sure. course it would work. Yeah. Uh, but we found when we did a head-to-head -head comparison, yep. we had dogs go, they went through the exact same procedure. It was a discrete trial, so we counted every single trial the dogs got. Yep. That if we used it where we weren't burying the food with the odor, mm -hmm. the dogs actually picked it up and were on the target odor faster Correct. than when it was with them. So from that point on, we basically just haven't gone with that system because at that point, you never know, is it the food they're paying attention to uh -huh. or is it the target odor? Uh -huh. Whereas this, we know it's the target odor right away yep. and it tended to work faster. So... Yeah, that, that's why we do it. Yeah, it, it works faster. Yeah, and we have the data to show that it works faster for us. No, and it is exactly right. I know many listeners out here will absolutely know if you have paired your reward, whether it be food, the Kong, the ball, with that target odor, we all know your dogs love that Kong and that toy or whatever. And you do your proofing training like, look, I put the Kong out here. The dog's ignoring it. It's finding the target odor. But you've created more time. You've created a more complex system versus just doing a marker-based system where the dog is only getting the target odor it's looking for, and it is signaled that that is correct and followed up with its primary reward. That sequence happens in the learning process a whole lot faster. The connectivity between target and reinforcement is much faster and much stronger without the need of placing a object of reward next to the, to the odor in order to get the dog to do something. Um, again, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, to add to that is, uh, what a lot of times we think of physical proximity as, as sort of, you know, providing that pairing, right? Yep. But from a Pavlovian perspective or for pairing, mm -hmm. what's important is we know simultaneous conditioning, they both happen at the same time. Yep. It's not as good as things like delay conditioning in which the stimulus one predicts stimulus two. Yep. So depending on what your odor is, mm -hmm. so it would probably be more effective as if your target odor mm -hmm. was a lot more concentrated so that the dogs could learn to use the target odor to find the food. Yep. That's one thing. Yep. But if you're just simply presenting two things together, mm -hmm. for us it was a hot dog and I forget what target odor we were using, mm -hmm. but they were at pretty similar sort of smelliness. Yep. So the yep. dog was just paying attention to the hot dog. Yeah. Uh, so simply putting them together wasn't really... Pairing didn't help them anything. In a sense. Yes, it exactly. Was, it, it wasn't providing that pairing. To get that pairing, you need that odor stimulus to come first. Correct. In some sense. Yes. Uh, so, uh, I mean, there'd be different ways to do it, but we didn't. We haven't found any data to suggest that having that reward item next to the food or next to the target, yeah, is is valuable. Time pairing yep. is critical. Yep. Physical pairing and proximity and in space mm -hmm. that doesn't to necessarily be a yeah. key factor. So on to the last part, 
is our, our discussion went into real world utilization of the dog versus its training. And handlers all the time will go, man, my dog does awesome in training, but on the real world, it struggles. It's not really working as good or it's highly distracted over here when I'm doing it. When I get, I do a traffic stop, it's all distracted by all these other factors. But in training, I can mimic a traffic stop. It does great. I don't understand. What's the problem? So elaborate a little bit about what we discussed on what training versus real and how to combat this issue. Yeah. So uh, we're actually working on sort of building a, a laboratory simulated model to work on trying how to combat this issue mm -hmm. so that we can start looking at, well, what's the best way to do this mm -hmm. within perhaps operational parameters that are, are, are relevant that, mm -hmm. uh, to get that. And uh, we'll be talking to Mallory at another time. Yeah. And she's the one that's working on developing that. But basically, from a behavioral perspective, or mm -hmm. sort of where the this theory comes from, right, is that uh, dogs are not stupid, right? Mm -hmm. They're incredibly smart. Yep. Their their brain, you mm -hmm. know, is like any other mammal brain. It's basically mm -hmm. a supercomputer, mm -hmm. right? Think about, you know, why do we even still use dogs? Why don't we go out there with a little chemical sensor wand, sure. right? Correct. Or yep. why don't we send it out on a robot? Yeah. You know I mean, mm -hmm. because a robot would fall over once it saw steps, right? Yeah. Sure. Uh, the dog is a, a, an impressive supercomputer with all of these kinds of amazing powers, mm -hmm. and they're not stupid. Yep. They know when they're in training, and yep. they know when they're not in training. They're mm -hmm. in sort of a real-world situation. And one thing that a lot of times happens is that in training, the reward rate is really, really high. Mm -hmm. The reinforcement rate, think of your different schedules of reinforcement, going back mm -hmm. to you know Skinner's old schedules of reinforcement manipulation. Yep. Schedule of reinforcement is extremely high in training. Mm -hmm. Maybe Maybe you don't even run blanks, or maybe you run a blank every fifth or sixth trial or something yep. like that. Yep. So that the reward rate is really, really high. Yep. Now, you know, after time, the dog goes out into the real world. Mm -hmm. And if a lot of operational handlers won't reward in real world situations. Yep. Uh, so the dog is tested on what we call extinction. Basically, yep. that in real world, extinction, no mm -hmm. reinforcement is coming. Yep. Training, really high reinforcement rates. Yep. Uh, so basically what we say is these are two different contexts. Yep. The dog learns these different contexts, and you can mimic mm -hmm. this in different rooms, mm -hmm. or even with rodents in different boxes, where you mm -hmm. can make the boxes look, look different. Yep. And extinction that happens in one context doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily generalize to another context, mm -hmm. and it can be very context specific. Mm -hmm. So that means that in the training context, there's no extinction going on because yep. you have a really high rate of reinforcement. Yep. But in the real world, you have extinction going on, and that's a different context. Yep. And the dog understands or at least responds appropriately mm -hmm. that in the real world context they know that extinction is in effect yep. so it's basically saying if you you know whenever you go into training seminars you're going to get paid mm -hmm. and if you ever go out and work in the real world you're not going to get paid for that yep. you probably would not be all that excited to go out in the real world you spend sure. all your time in seminars and yep. seminars would be great yep. you could do great in your training seminars mm -hmm. but then when you have to go out into the real world probably you could you could do it, but you just don't care to do it because you're, yeah. you're not going to get paid for it, that time. Exactly. So, and to humanize it, what you're saying is, so let's, let's say if you're a cop, we're going to pay you when you're going to training. You're, when you're going to your DT training or you're going into your vehicle training or your taser training, we're paying you time and a half. But when you go out and you start working calls, we probably won't pay you. Um, if we do, it's very rarely. Or we're going to make you do it twice before we pay you. Which one becomes more motivating for you? And would you be able to tell the difference? Of course you would. So as, as, as Nathan's pointing out, with the dog, 
if you are obviously in training, reinforcing dog regularly, it's getting its re- it's getting its toy when it finds something. But on the street, you're like, oh, I'm I'm not going to reward the street because I don't know what's there. I don't want to you know reward my dog on the pack of cigarettes that was the the dog was or the drugs possibly was in or when the dog alerts, I don't find anything. Uh, how do I validate that I just didn't reward him for smelling the cigar tube or whatever? What we're bringing up is if your training is sound, your training eliminates that fear. You don't have to worry about, oh, well, I just rewarded my dog and I don't know what we rewarded him for. If you have a sound training model where you have plenty of proofing items and distractor items and so forth, that particular time, if you gave your primary reward after that dog alerted on that vehicle and you A, didn't find something or you found the narcotic next to something that was also a very uh, permissive odor, you don't have to freak out or worry that, oh my gosh, I rewarded for this. That training being sound is the most important part. Now, the worrisome part is like like we're bringing up is it's different. You're not rewarding on the street or I'll take away the argument of those who are like, well, I, once I confirm what I've got, I get my dog back out and I reward. Nathan, you can bring, you can re- attest to that. That's still not the same as that first contact, the dog being reinforced versus being brought back out after you searched, found the narcotic and think, oh, I'm going to run my dog on it now. Because again, let me take away your argument on that is, okay, you found the narcotic in there. What else is in there that you were afraid of a minute ago that you said you didn't want to reward for? So, I mean, I'll let you kind of finish off that idea, but you know, that real world versus training, obviously there's these significant gaps that exist and the dogs are very much picking up on it. Yeah, so um, as we were talking about earlier, there's lots of different uh, research studies in that and that's sort of why we're trying to build this model to assess that mm-hmm. and particularly actually get some data at, well, because what we can do is we can start to manipulate things like, mm-hmm. well, what if we incidentally re- reward the wrong odor? Mm-hmm. What does that happen? Mm-hmm. You know, how long, how many oopses can you make mm-hmm and the real context that might create potential serious concerns. Yep. Or can you make significant oopses or you know, mm-hmm. reward the wrong thing? Mm-hmm. We don't know that. Yeah. That's, not, that's not a known thing yet. Yeah. So uh, we need to do that research to start uh, looking at that. And mm-hmm. then ultimately what, we're going, what we have to make a decision of is we can sort of bias the dog in one of two ways. Mm-hmm. More likely to make an alert, less likely to make an alert, mm-hmm. right? And when mm-hmm. you sort of adjust that criterion, think of like, you know, the, the hearing test, right? When you raise your hand yeah. to whether, did you hear something? Did yeah. you not hear something, uh-huh. right? And some people are going to be raising their hand. All the time. They're like thinking, oh, I heard, I heard something. something. I, yep. I raised my hand, yep. right? So they're going to be more likely to make false alerts. Correct. Whereas other people might be like, unless they're like 100% confident. Uh-huh where that they've heard it yep. only then will they raise their hand yeah and we sort of have that criterion it's yep. sort of, it's under a framework called signal detection theory and when that criterion can kind of be adjusted through training yep and the question is is and some dogs seem to have different criterions to start off with sure. when you train them right yeah, some yeah, dogs yeah. are yep. are are very eager to make a response and some dogs are will never like nope not my training situation. yeah yeah exactly, exactly. Uh, so you do have dogs with different ones, but training can start to shift that. Mm-hmm. And the question is, is how do we sort of move or sort of shift that criterion to an optimal period so that the dog is still happy and motivated mm-hmm. to work in real-world operations yep. at optimal sensitivity, mm-hmm. but we haven't shifted that criterion to the point where if there's anything reminiscent of some target odor, I'm going to alert uh, so that you sort of get a, a high false positive rate. And 
and, and where those parameters need to be, we don't know. We mm -hmm. have some hypotheses about where we can go with that, how we can improve that performance. Uh, but you know, it's, that's what uh, that's what we do. We, yeah. we sit here and we try to figure out, well, how do we do this? What do the data say? And use sort of uh, empirical measures by actually yeah. looking at, well, what happens when you do this? Mm -hmm. And then we look at that and see what those effects are. We have the benefit that, you know, we don't have, none of our dogs go to trial, so we don't sure. have to justify it. Yeah. Instead, what we can, so if our, if we end up biasing our dogs to really high false positive rates, yep. then we know, oops, we shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Then we train some yep. new dogs and do it a different way yep. and see if that works out. Mm -hmm. And that's that's basically what we do here. That's, mm -hmm. that's our, that's our. Yeah. Well, and, and like we said, the big picture is, people, is to make training in reality virtually the same as best you can for the dog. If it is dramatically different, then the dogs are going to pick up on that. Don't be afraid to use reinforcement on a real search. If your training is sound, you shouldn't have to worry about all of these different arguments that get constantly thrown out there. If your training is sound, well-rounded, you can reinforce the dog on an actual search. It shouldn't be dramatically different between the two. So with that said, Nathan, I greatly appreciate you letting me have this interview time with you and the invitation out here to Texas Tech. For those that are listening, um, going forward in the future, our, us at Silver State Canine and myself and Nathan are going to be trying to do more projects together, more working together. So if you guys have questions on this podcast or future ideas or maybe things you guys would like feedback or interest on, feel free to email me at Ford, F-O-R-D, at SilverStateK9.com. That's Ford at SilverStateK9.com. Again, thanks for listening, and we look forward to doing our next episode here at Texas Tech. That was Episode 3 with Nathan Hall. I hope everybody enjoyed it. I hope you found the information very enlightening or maybe shed some light on some things that you may have had as far as uh, experiences or preconceived notions, things like that. But uh, Dr. Hall, again, I thank him greatly for taking his time, giving me the tour of the facility and spending time sitting down, talking, answering my questions, all in hopes to give my listeners you guys out there, best information based on science and data, not just our experiences or the experiences of somebody else that may or may not have something based in science. Our goal with these episodes is to help inform our listeners on best practices based on real data, based on factual scientific information, and all as a effort to better our industry and have stronger, better detection dogs, whether it be professionally or those of us that compete in sport. So again, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please feel free to contact me. My email address is Ford, F-O-R-D, at SilverStateK, the number nine, dot com. That's Ford at SilverStateK9.com.